MSW Media. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 106 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, February 1st. I'm your host, Allison Gill. With me, as always, real-life lawyer and real-life friend, Andrew Torres. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Allison. How are you? I am. I'm good. It's, it's uh, shaping up to be a busy news week already, and we have a lot to talk about today, including uh, Navarro's trial being pushed back a little bit. We're going to talk about who Chertoff is and what's going on with the <laughs> Supreme Court. Uh, investigation into the Dobbs leak, and of course, new information coming out of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. I think he's appointed a special grand jury to look into the hush money payment, finally. So anyhow, uh, here we are, uh, which is, you know, also also weird. Why why doesn't he have a special grand jury to look into all the tax fraud or, <laughs> or anything else going on? But regardless, we're going to talk about that. And um, but first, we, we should talk about our, our patrons because they're awesome. They are indeed. So a big shout out. Remember, if you head on over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, that's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D and sign up at any level. That is a buck an episode. Then you will get a shout out here. If you sign up at the $2 an episode level, you will get twice as much cleanup on aisle 45. We do a special bonus episode for patrons every week. It comes out on Friday and it is uh, raw, unexpurgated. I swear a lot, and um, and uh, and a lot of fun. So, those of you joining us this week are Judy Narvid, Tam D, Dave M, Ezekiel Bacon's Grounds, Kiel Kiel Camfjord, Tim Scott, Janelle, and Wendy Cano. Uh, take it away, Allison. Yes, we also have new patrons: Dabia, Sam, Jill Khan, Greg Eldridge. Dustin, the gay atheist black sheep of the family Baez, Tim New or Noy could be, uh, and we have uh, Bryson King. And finally, find out if your relative was there on January sixth by taking a twenty three eighty three and Me test. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Twenty three eighty three. I'm thinking of that great bit from The Simpsons where it's like, "That's a joke that not one in a million people would get." <laughs> I love it. I love it. Our listeners are the best. Yes, absolutely. So thanks again for being patrons. You make the show work. Uh, all right. I'll, I'd like to kick this off, if it's cool with you, uh, about what's going on uh, with this new news, the breaking news. Manhattan District Attorney will begin presenting the Trump case to a grand jury. And the lead here is Alvin Bragg. Uh, has a decision. This represents a dramatic escalation of the inquiry and potentially sets the case on a path toward criminal charges against the former president. Uh, So he apparently has impaneled a special grand jury about Trump's role in paying Stormy Daniels, uh, you know, for her silence, which is, you know, I, I assume you wouldn't impanel a grand jury unless you were trying to bring indictments 
Um, but this grand jury is impaneled for six months, generally. I don't know if they will use the entire six months, but it, it could be a while before and, and if any charges are brought, that's up to the grand jury. Uh, my question for you is a little bit about the statute of limitations, because in, it's it's five years, but I know Cuomo told it for a minute, uh, like eight months during COVID, uh, said he's pausing all criminal and civil statutes of limitations because of COVID. And if that last check that we've all seen that was written at the end of 2017 uh, is, in fact, the last payment, then that means we have until about May of this year. But there are, and I have heard from a few people who I've spoken to on the condition of anonymity, uh, that there was actually a payment made in late 2018 as well. So that could give us until well into next year, uh, May of next year. So what are your thoughts on on this? Why now? Why didn't he do this before? I guess maybe <laughs> Vance didn't do this before. Uh, and why this particular crime when he's got so many other crimes to choose from? Yeah, and and I, I want to drill down on the particularity of the crime uh, in a second, because again... This is a black box at this point, so we we are speculating. I, I also want to add, because we're speculating, in civil cases, right, your cause of action for which uh, there is a particular time limit, right, uh, under which there are any applicable statutes of limitation, that begins to run with what is called the discovery rule. The discovery rule says your cause of action begins at the moment you knew or should have known that there was a civil wrong committed against you, right? So in other words, for things like fraud, for example, if it's well concealed, your statute of limitations, be it three or four years, doesn't begin to run until the earliest moment at which anybody could have possibly known that there was something oh. to go after, right? And, so perhaps and in his investigation of all of this Trump org stuff, maybe he found this other payment that extended the statute of limitations. Uh, uh, I mean, did, 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 that's that's certainly possible. Uh, but 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 also think about this in the context. So, for example, right, there is not a statute of limitations for murder. Right. But uh, but imagine if there was right. It's very, very easy to know when the statute of limitations begins to run on a murder. That is the moment at which the dead body is discovered, right? You would say, okay, that starts the clock. When you are talking about a business fraud, right? And that's the the crime, uh, one of two crimes that uh, it is suspected that Alvin Bragg may be asking the grand jury to consider charging uh, Donald Trump with. Um how does one one can only uncover a fraud when some evidence of that presents itself? So again, I, I, we don't know the particular statute. I don't know how that's been handled in the New York courts, but I do know that analogously, right in civil litigation, that lack of lack of discovery, the impossibility of knowing that this happened, uh, it means that the clock doesn't start to run until the moment where a reasonable person would say, oh, um, something wrong has happened. And when did we know that something wrong has happened? Like that, that would have been in 2018, right? When this evidence began to come out. So there may be a couple potential vehicles, right? That's, that's one way is to say, look, these charges have to be brought within uh, five years of issuing the illegal payments to Michael Cohen, right? Because that's the criminal wrong, and that's when the clock starts to run. And then your suggestion, which is true, is for an ongoing criminal activity, the the start of the clock is delayed until the very last, till the crime is completed, right? Till the evidence of the very last part of that crime uh, continues. So if you have a year's worth of payments, that gets extended for a year into the future. And similarly, uh, if it is told by order of the executive uh, during COVID, that gets to add some time back onto the clock. And that may get us to May. And I'm suggesting that if there is a discovery rule, that may also be a way to add some time onto the clock. So put all of that kind of in bucket number one. We saw that in the Manafort case because, he, I mean, he, he, he was doing that, his, his fraud and money laundering for like a decade. Yep. Uh, and so as long as he kept on doing it, 
Um, you know, and we would say if as long as Trump keeps criming, that statute of limitations isn't going to start tolling as long as it's part of the same actions, part of the same crime. Right. I mean, how does that work? Right. Because, yeah, it, you can't to- you can't extend a statute of limitations on business fraud if he shoots somebody in the face. Right. That's right. a different, <laughs> yeah. different crime. Yeah, it has to be the same common nucleus of operative facts. But also, again, think about it. If it what it would imply minus any kind of discovery rule analysis. And again, uh, we need to know the specific statute and how the courts have handled it. But a discovery rule analysis is going to be employed in in some sense because otherwise, basically, what you're saying is if you can plan the perfect crime. <laughs> right then you could never get charged right so in other words the, the if if it is impossible for someone to discover your crime until the end of the period in which the statute of limitations operates then you would just sort of incentivize better criminal schemes as opposed and you know the the better criminal schemes are the ones you definitely want to you you most want to prosecute so th- there's going to be some kind of analysis of Hey, when did this clock start running uh, for purposes of computing that five-year period? When? What are the time periods in the middle in which it stopped running? And uh, and and that that will be an interesting question. That backs us up to the why 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 are we doing this in twenty twenty three? Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't have and, a great and, answer for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, you know. And part of my job when I was an internal auditor for a corporation uh, was to find stuff like that. People would hide things for long enough to not be noticed. Um, For example, if you were a sales rep at my company and you got a commission for selling a thing Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out, you know, you have three months in which to be charged back if that person returns the item. But what they would do is that they would give them three free months of the service so that it wouldn't cancel until after that window passed. Right. And I found I found about a million and a half dollars of fraud uh, on just on that trick alone. Uh, so. So, yeah, I, I totally understand that. But, yeah, why now and why these crimes? But uh, that's I mean, we could talk for an hour about that. But uh, you mentioned two crimes here that that are purportedly being investigated. And I'm assuming one of them is lying about, you know, because Trump said he was paying legal fees to Michael Cohen instead of reimbursing him for a, 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 a second mortgage he took out to pay off Stormy Daniels. <laughs> yeah. Why did you have your fixer take out a second mortgage to do that? I'll never understand, but... Uh, that's it, the definition of a good fixer, willing willing to mortgage his house for you. <laughs> and cover up, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and so that's one crime is, you know, falsifying business records. What's, what's yep. the other? So the other would be an analog of the federal election crimes, right? A a New York state election crime that says, hey, look, what you have done is essentially made an in-kind campaign contribution. That's right. And so if you are looking for any good faith explanation for holding off, that might be a, hey, we're going to give the Federal Elections Commission uh, every opportunity to investigate this and get involved. And, oh, look, the FEC is irrevocably broken, as we have talked about uh, on this show on multiple occasions. So they have taken a pass. They are very clearly not interested uh, in looking at 2016 campaign expenses. Uh, but, uh, you know, I I talked to uh, Beth Kingsley, who's uh, who, who does this sort of thing for a living, and one of the things that she emphasized to me is that in these elections law cases, the definition of thing of value is necessarily very broad, right? And so the idea that you would, right? So for example, if this were a bribery case, right? We know uh, from the Bob McDonald case that went 9-0 before the Supreme Court, right? That just, you know, walk it, <laughs> that this was seemed like the classic movie case of bribery, right? Like bad guy executives at garbage. I I think it was a supplements company. I mean, whatever, like uh, bad guy at garbage company gave Bob McDonald's wife a fur coat, like let Bob McDonald use his uh, Ferrari, like rent free, gave literal (laughs) bags of money. I mean, it was just gross. And in exchange, McDonald like walked around arm in arm with this guy and, 
you know, told all the Republican legislators, uh, hey, man, you know, do 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 what you can here for Mr. Scumbag, because, you know, that's really, really important to me. And as a result, you know, Virginia passed a bunch of laws that uh, that benefited uh, uh, Mr. Scumbag. And the Supreme Court 9-0 reversed and said, look, bribery, quid pro quo, requires that the quo be a governmental function, right? Must be something officially that you've done. So if I give you a sack of money for you to vote a certain way, that's bribery. But if I give you a sack of money and what you do is kind of like make me your friend, well, the statute doesn't criminalize that. I think that's a preposterously stupid rule. Uh, I think that's an implausible construction of the statute. But, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg signed on to it, and she was way smarter than I am, so maybe I'm wrong on this. And again, if we had a functioning legislature, the response would be to come back and fix the bribery statute. Instead, what we have is, you know, a, a half the government is a kleptocracy of, of morons. And so, you know, the Republicans were like... Yeah, no, we like the fact that those are what the bribery rules are. Mm, and uh, by the way, keep keep giving money and we'll keep introducing you around for entree, which the Supreme Court is now blessed. So mm. that digression is just meant to is meant to contrast, right? Bribery, the quo is incredibly narrow. It must be an official political act. In campaign, in federal election law, uh, and and I presume uh, in, in New York law, um, Although, you know, this is sparsely litigated. That's the, kind of the takeaway that I want you to do. But in federal election law, the the thing that must be given is anything of value. And the case law is robust and deep that lots of things count as things of value and that that clearly would include a journalist burying a story that is hostile to your case. So yeah. and, and one would you. think one would think that opposition research on Hillary Clinton would be considered a thing of value. Uh, but, you know, uh, you, know you, I, you know how much that because <laughs> you pay somebody to do it. So by definition, that is a thing of value. Yeah. With regard to the Trump Tower. Uh, yeah. Yep. But yeah, there are entire companies who make livings and send their kids to very expensive private schools on oppo research. But. We, you know, the Southern District of New York shut down this hush money case under Barr. Um, not that they would have indicted a sitting president, a president anyway. Uh, but, you know, it'd be interesting to see in FOIA those memos of the shutdown yep. of that particular case, too. And so now here's Alvin Bragg, I guess, trying to be cool like Fonnie Willis and uh, <laughs> going <laughs> forward with impaneling a special grand jury uh... to look into these hush money payments, but not but giving a sweetheart deal to Weisselberg. For no reason and not going after the obvious tax fraud. That just kind of yep. blows my mind a little bit. But uh, uh, here we still, are. Still blows mine. And let me point out any financial crime uh, with which Donald Trump is charged. Alan Weisselberg is a necessary witness. So, uh, again, there was a time period in which Alvin Bragg had maximum leverage over Alan Weisselberg. That was prior to entering a plea deal when he had a case that would have presumably resulted in Bragg serving five to 10 years in prison. Uh, and Alvin Bragg gave Weisselberg time served in exchange for nothing. And so uh, I uh, railed about it at the time. I'm railing about it now. And, and again, what I want to be clear with here is, and this will sort of close the loop on, you know, some folks who, you know, tried to defend that, 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 that that deal was not and is not contingent on cooperation. That was why I was critical of it at the time. That's why I'm critical now. And so if Weisselberg says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm not going to cooperate <laughs> in connection with your efforts to prosecute Trump over the Stormy Daniels stuff, and I'm the guy who signed all of the reimbursement, quote unquote, to uh, essential consulting, and I get on the stand and go, I don't remember your recourse there is to bring a separate indictment against Weisselberg for perjury. And now you're in a place where that is a harder crime to prove than the very obvious tax fraud, which was super easy to prove. We had the documents, we had the receipts. And so, uh, you know, people. Yeah. And not being able to squeeze Weisselberg might be why they're going with the hush money payment case, because, uh, Noted witnesses uh, for <laughs> Alvin Bragg are Dylan Howard and David Pecker. And 
my question for you now, uh, after closing that particular loop over on the Weisselberg end, I'm going to open another loop here. David Pecker had a, a limited use immunity uh, agreement with him and AMI, and he seemingly violated, uh, because if you have an immunity deal, you aren't allowed to break any more laws while you're right. helping cooperate. And this was with the feds. This was with the Southern District of New York. And, and you aren't allowed to break any more laws. And he actually blackmailed Jeff Bezos by threatening to release photos of his, I guess, mistress, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, somebody he was having an affair with. Bezos came out and wrote a whole article about it and ex just exposed himself. We did a whole episode on it called Bezos Exposes Pecker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, dust off all the Pecker jokes because I'm, I'm here for it. But I'm wondering how that immunity with the feds could impact his him as a witness here. Is that why he's a witness and not being charged? Or maybe because he violated that immunity deal, he, he Alvin Bragg was able to squeeze him to cooperate, and maybe there's a plea agreement in the works. I'm not sure, but I just wanted to sort of remind everybody about that that Pecker immunity. <laughs> And I am 12, so uh, I, those jokes didn't even need to be dusted off as far as I'm concerned. No, here's the thing. Uh, I agree with 100% of your analysis. For purposes of uh, requiring Pecker to testify before the grand jury, you want that immunity deal to be in place, right? Because that means Pecker can't plead the fifth when you ask him in front of the grand jury did you and Donald Trump collude to kill the Stormy Daniels story? Uh, and Pecker says, yes, as opposed to, I declined to answer on the grounds that my answer might tend to incriminate myself. So if there's a, if there's a doubt in the immunity, that's going to come up at a later point in time when you're working with Pecker as a witness and assessing the degree to which he's cooperating. And again, this is not a speculative thing. It's not even a speculative thing in Trump world, right? Like we, we, we saw this happen repeatedly in the Mueller investigation when, you know, there were reports that, uh, you know, so-and-so had, I mean, there were reports that Manafort had flipped, right? And what we learned was, um, no, uh, that, that, uh, they remained loyal to Trump and were lying. And so, uh, that, that happens to prosecutors, right? you, you have somebody that you think is cooperating in your investigation and you get halfway through and you realize that they're lying, you then table the question of, okay, what am I going to do to punish this guy for lying to me? Which, let me tell you, you table, but you come back to, right? Prosecutors do not like being strung along by Paul Manafort, and that's Paul, part of why uh, they were incredibly tenacious uh, in in going after Manafort. Um but, well, but, perhaps if, uh, you know, if Pecker decides to be a, a dick, <laughs> uh, then then you have this other potential crime. That's right. Uh, that's right. And you, but, and you can you always immunize him anew. That's right. And, and so my point, and, and you're, you're right to, to kind of nudge me back on track there, is that if at some point, suppose, suppose this leads to uh, presenting a case against Trump before the grand jury, and you put Pecker on and you realize that like, okay, uh, this is probably going to be enough to indict, but now I'm worried about him as a prosecution witness, right? right? Because again, the standards are different, right? You, you, you prosecute someone, you want to prove that they are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, not merely that there is sufficient evidence to issue an indictment, right? Um, and so uh, that, that threshold escalates radically. And you might say to yourself, okay, um, I've, we, we've got to go back and, uh, you know, make sure we clear things up with Pecker here <laughs> and having more leverage is always better than having less leverage. Yeah. Hi, this is John Cryer and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called lawyers, guns, and money that'll challenge everything you think, you know, about us covert operations and presidential misconduct from Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. 
I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. That's very true. All right, so we will keep an eye on this special purpose grand jury uh, and see if uh, Alvin Bragg talks a lot about it or does a garland and doesn't talk about it at all or does a Jack Smith and writes a bunch of letters that we get to read. Who knows? We'll, we'll, <laughs> keep, we'll keep you posted on everything that, that is publicly available. And, of course, to, by any of our anonymous sources, which are a few and far between, but we do have some, we will let you know. We're going to take a quick break uh, right now, but we're going to be back to talk about uh, what's going on with the uh, Navarro case. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi there, Diana Erickson here, host of the podcast One Sweet Dream, which is a podcast that shines new light on the Beatles, illuminating their story in ways not seen before. This podcast does deep storytelling to get to radical new ideas and insights that transform our understanding of their story. We've always known the Beatles story was exciting and epic, but there is an even bigger, better, sexier, and more beautiful story that's been hiding in plain sight. And that's what I want to share with you. Historians say that it takes about 50 years to tell the story of an event properly. And so here we are, a little over 50 years later, and have I got a great story to tell. So I hope you'll join us at Once We Dream podcast, where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Episodes will be released every Tuesday and Friday. So please subscribe to Once We Dream wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Andrew, what the frick is going on with the Navarro case? Because I read Meta's dismissal of Navarro's motion to dismiss his contempt charges. And Meta was like, you don't have immunity. There's no such thing as blanket immunity for, you know, based on your OLC memos uh, that that uh, applied to Kellyanne Conway and her Hatch Act violations in the Department of Justice. But now he's saying that there are questions about privilege and uh, and absolute immunity for presidential advisors that didn't apply to Bannon and is asking the government to sort this out, which is delaying the trial. Can you give us a little information on what's happening? Yeah, that is exactly right. So Friday, uh, there was a hearing uh, that was uh, cleaning up a bunch of outstanding pleadings in the Navarro case. Trial was scheduled for this past Monday. January 30th. And after, at the end of that hearing, uh, Judge Maida st struck the trial from the schedule and scheduled briefing on this question of uh, executive privilege with the government's brief due end of February, February 28th, the Navarro's response due by March 21st, and then the government's reply brief due March 31st. That is 
slightly accelerated on the schedule, but, but, but a pretty generous briefing schedule. Um, and then, uh, it, it also necessitated if you are like me, the kind of person that reads the docket entries, they're like four or five set reset sp- speedy trial deadline <laughs> docket entries. And basically what happens in cases like that is that, uh, Navarro, because he's a rich white dude connected to Donald Trump or, you know, not connected to Donald Trump, rich white dudes generally for nonviolent crimes are released on their personal recognizance. So, you know, he's not in prison. And so if you ask him, Hey, uh, would you like to postpone into the future, the date in which you might be put into prison? The answer is yes, I very much would like to postpone that into the future. But, uh, you also have to cover your backside if you are the prosecutors, because if you do so, and it is not clear for the record that that delay is something that the defendant has waived as part of their Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial, you might find that, you know, you get to that point in the future, everybody's agreed to kind of push stuff forward, but nobody has made a sufficient record, and now all of a sudden the defendant says, no, 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 I mean, one of the few things that's super clear in the Constitution is, right, I'm criminally charged, I have the right to a speedy trial, and this has not been speedy. So uh, agreed upon delay, because Navarro is out on, on personal recognizance, he will remain out on personal recognizance until the resolution of this and briefing will uh, not end for two months. So yeah, I, I think a lot of us were surprised by this. And a big reason to be surprised was because of just how bad uh, the motion for reconsideration uh, with the attached affidavit that uh, we talked about at some length on Thursday's opening arguments uh, just how bad that was. Um, it was uh, the, the sort of time travel, <laughs> uh, a, a letter from Evan the Cork Corcoran saying that, oh yeah, no, we, President Trump definitely 100% meant to tell you to assert executive privilege on his behalf. And the fact that he's never said that in public until now must just be some kind of crazy random, we don't know why that is, but he's saying it now about a thing that happened in the past and and that if you were at that hearing that that was not an issue that judge Maida really struggled with very much right um that 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 first half we talked about on this show the first half of judge Maida's ruling uh, that denied uh most of the uh, that that denied the motion to dismiss filed by Navarro and granted most of the government's motions in limine about what uh, Navarro couldn't couldn't raise a trial that we talked about. Uh, noticed that that uh, executive privilege argument was contingent upon the president actually manifesting an assertion of executive privilege at the time, and there was no such evidence in the record. And Judge Maida continued to point out that there was no such evidence in the record now, uh, and and that 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 a, that a, a letter dated January twenty third, twenty twenty three, by the former president's current lawyer about what might have happened in, uh, you know, that, that doesn't change anything. You got to present it at the time, but (laughs) yeah, what does change it? What, what does change it is the question of what position the department of justice is allowed to maintain in front of judge Maida. And, and by that, I mean a very specific thing. So we've talked about how office of legal counsel memoranda are just that they are memoranda they are, you know, what we call sternly worded crunch wraps over on opening arguments. They are <laughs> not uh, binding on any court whatsoever because it is a, a, a legal office staffed by the president. <laughs> and so particularly on issues that relate to the role of the president vis-a-vis the role of the judicial system, the Office of Legal Counsel uh, tends to take maximalist positions, right? You you heard, we talked about at great length, you broke down in more detail than any non-lawyer ever has the OLC memoranda that say you can't indict a sitting president. And they, <laughs> uh, and they date back to totally self-serving statements from the Nixon administration, right? Um, but those positions, while they must, while they're nothing more than sternly worded crunch wraps to the court, uh, are binding on executive branch agencies. You cannot take a position that is not 
clearly supported by an uh, by an OLC memorandum. In other words, if 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 the Office of Legal Counsel says uh, it is our considered view uh, that high level staffers are immune from compelled congressional testimony, even if they are former staffers, then the Department of Justice can't take that, can't take an opposite view. Uh, but DOJ, though, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but DOJ did weigh in on the Meadows case and said there's no such thing as blanket immunity for advisors to the president, and we, we can indict Meadows if we want. Uh, and But I think that was more of a blanket immunity and might have been a different OLC memo that, that they were trying to raise, but I, I feel like it was the same memo. Yeah, no, it, it the, the argument that they raised in the Meadows case is I think the same argument that they are going to raise here. And that is uh, that they are parsing the language, even though you can find language in, and it's 44 OLC one uh, that, that suggests that uh, or, or that explicitly says this applies to both present and former staffers. I think what they're going to, what they're going to do, what they did with Meadows is to say, right, but when you look at the analysis, the analysis only applies to present staffers, and there is no guidance about when that conflicts with the express determination made by the current executive to not or to either not to assert uh, or, as in this case, to waive executive immunity with, with respect okay, so- uh, to their testimony. Yes. So they have not. Is it that they haven't argued that in this Navarro case? And if not, why not? It's so it's that they haven't had to reach that in this Navarro case until now, because you could very easily just say, oh, there, there was no. And, and, and in fact, we, we highlighted this line before Navarro went and got Evan the cork to you know retroactively assert privilege. You could say, oh, yeah, this would be a very different case if this were Mark Meadows, right, which is word for word what Judge Maida said in that first section in ruling on executive privilege. I don't have to address the factual record because uh, there's a threshold issue. That threshold issue is, have you asserted executive privilege? The answer is no. So therefore, I don't have to deal with the question of, can Biden waive that privilege and therefore allow the current DOJ to be consistent with a with a memorandum that says the privilege applies to both current and and former staffers. When was the first time Navarro raised the argument of the OLC memo? And and if and and I guess my question is why didn't the DOJ respond to Navarro's argument when he first raised it the same way they responded uh, or the same way that they weighed in on the Meadows uh, the situation? I mean, it's the same argument. Why are we? I don't understand why the DOJ either didn't make the argument before or isn't saying now like, oh, we already did this here. We did it in the Meadows case. I don't understand what's taking so yeah. long. No, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad because uh, I, this is this is helping me, you know, sort of sharpen as as we're explaining this out to the listeners. That was argued that has been briefed and that was argued. But it was not decided, not even as dicta by Judge Mehta uh, uh, up until this point, right? So, in other words, oh, it, it was it argued was, but not litigated. It was it was well, it was argued and litigated, but uh, Judge Mehta sort of sort of said, "Hey, I don't have to weigh in on this uh, because uh, those OLC memoranda only apply when there is a clear assertion of executive privilege." So. For example, right on, and and so this is the opinion it. that Judge Meta issued. No, I know you do, and I, but I want to make a hundred percent clear because because if I lost you prior to now, then I've definitely lost some of our listeners. <laughs> so let's make sure that we get this exactly right. So page ten uh, of that Judge Meta ruling, and again, this is the day before they got Evan the Cork to to travel back in time uh, and <laughs> issue you know this. Well, we meant to, right? Uh, it it says relying on a. OLC opinion from July 12, 2019, Navarro insists that as a senior advisor of the president, he was not required to appear before the select committee, uh, even on non-official matters, right? Uh, The cited opinion, however, does not stand for such a broad proposition. The opinion concerned uh, a congressional subpoena to Kellyanne Conway, senior advisor to President Trump, about her alleged violations of the Hatch Act. OLC reaffirmed its longstanding opinion 
that Congress may not constitutionally compel the president's senior advisors to testify about their official duties. Because the subject of the subpoena testimony plainly concerns Ms. Conway's official duties, OLC concluded that she could not be compelled to appear for testimony. The OLC opinion, therefore, does not suggest that the senior advisor of the president can resist a congressional subpoena on matters related to his unofficial acts. Okay, So, in other words, uh, at that time, they were citing the OLC memoranda for the proposition that doesn't matter whether uh, the president ever asserts it, I get to assert it on his behalf. It doesn't matter whether it is for official or unofficial acts. Like, I, it's just blanket. I, I get a get-out-of-jail-free card, and I don't have to show up. And Judge Mehta said, no, 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 that, that's not how I read that issue. But it, it doesn't matter because you don't have any presidential assertion, so I don't have to rule based on it. And now, if there's some assertion in the record, right, that there was a privilege being asserted at the time, now what Judge Mehta wants to know is, DOJ, you tell us how, in light of your view of these OLC memoranda, which are binding on what you can argue in this court, even though they're not binding on how I, ha- how I can rule in this court, how you can advance these arguments. How can you stand for this proposition when this particular page in this particular memo st- seems to suggest that prior staffers enjoy immunity, may not be compelled to testify about their official duties. And now we have a letter that says uh, this January 6th committee is going to ask you about your official duties, so I t- I'm ordering you not to show up, right? So put all that together. Much of the briefing has already been done, which is why I am a little surprised at the uh, length of time that this is going to add on to the schedule. It is possible uh, that uh, Judge Beta needed to move out the trial date. That, in other words, you know, once you were no longer going to trial in January, right? He he may have not had an open trial date on his calendar until April, and so it may uh. not matter, right? I, it, it, that's just our courts are ridiculously overworked. So oh, yeah, that's Back that's one plausible the federal bench. Yep, yep. So. <laughs> Look, here's how I put all that together. I, I'm I, I'm I'm surprised on the one hand, but but not surprised, right? Like one one of the the the, the praise that we have uh, individually and collectively heaped on Judge Meta is that th- this is a thorough <laughs> individual, yeah. and so you know what you want to do, and this you know among lawyers, right? We call it bulletproofing your opinion on appeal, right? You, yeah, you, he doesn't you, want his shit to be overturned on appeal. Yeah, you do. Trump's going to argue this, and you don't want the D.C. Circuit to say, "Oh, wait, you 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 never evaluated the substance, the merit of this particular claim." Okay, well, we're going to reverse and remand with instructions for you to evaluate. He doesn't want mm. that. So close all those doors. Let's make sure. Uh, and and uh, you know, in the articles that that were written uh, about that hearing, I tried to attend that hearing. Uh, I, I I dialed in and and uh, the the number didn't connect me in, so uh, I I really did try to attend it Friday morning, and uh, and I will tell you that uh, that that in the public reporting uh, from folks who were actually in the courthouse, uh, that the the question was essentially characterized of uh, you know the the this is this is a criminal case. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of the lines quoted in CNN was, seems to me you ought to have some pretty clear lines. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. 
and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Before you prosecute someone. Okay, so this is a lot like uh, the DOJ wanting to tie up that one last 1512C2 end with Judge Nichols to make sure that the Supreme Court won't overturn uh, any convictions for people charged with 1512C2 based on that one differing federal judge opinion and a misinterpretation of the statute. Yeah, I I, I think that's an excellent analogy. And, uh, you know, it, 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 as we said, uh, I am looking forward to Peter Navarro getting his four to six months uh, in federal <laughs> prison for uh, having told uh, the select committee, you know, where it can stick it. Uh, Do you think and, Meta will uh, have to allow him out pending appeal because they let uh, Bannon out pending appeal? Uh, I, I, I think they will look to that for guidance. I, I, I don't think the, he has to, but I think he will. Um, yeah, and, similarly you know, situated yeah. shit and all that yep. stuff. I think that's I Fuckers. think that's right. And yeah, no, I all know right. it's well, but um, you know, it's well, we got bigger fish to fry too. We do indeed. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just I I just I'm mad that this kind of assholery clogs up the courts with with misdemeanors and but you know again we need to expand the federal bench all right we're gonna take one more quick break we're gonna come back and talk about Chertoff and SCOTUS and all sorts of weird interesting uh things that should have been disclosed and conflicts of interest it's a fascinating story stick around we'll be right back all right everybody welcome back some new reporting uh, Andrew, <laughs> about the investigation into the Dobbs leak from the Supreme Court. We, <laughs> yeah. we know that the Supreme Court marshal, uh, quote unquote, investigated, uh, and her name was Curly, and she found nothing wrong. And then apparently SCOTUS brought in uh, an independent third party to look at Curly's investigation and say, yeah, this was legit. This was a good investigation. Uh, but as it turns out, much like the two people who searched Trump's additional properties for stolen documents were not exactly independent private investigators, uh, this third party that came in to look at the Curley investigation for the Dobbs leak isn't exactly independent either, and SCOTUS failed to disclose the financial ties it has with this person. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's, so let's hit both parts of that. The first is... Uh, and I, I would really love to make a, you know, three stooges joke here, but, uh, you know, it's Gail Curley, so it wouldn't, wouldn't quite work. But, um, no, the Supreme Court Marshal uh, issued a report that basically uh, excludes all possible sources for the Supreme Court leak of the draft Alito Dobbs opinion uh, that, uh, involve any Mission Impossible style stunts, right? So it was like, I talked to all the IT guys and we looked at our records and definitely nobody broke into our files, case closed. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but one of the things that the report conspicuously does not say is whether Marshall Curley even so much as spoke to any of the Supreme Court justices to ask them whether they were the source of the leak. And uh, and certainly it does not contain any uh, sworn affidavits. And the day after this, and, and, and so then that was turned over to a third party, 
uh, Michael Chertoff, we're going to talk about that in a second, who looked at this 22-page report and said, there is nothing, I would not do a thing differently. There was nothing that I could think of that would make this this any better. And that was just such a preposterously idiotic thing to say. We're gonna, so we're going to talk about how idiotic that was. Um, Madge, the uh, Marshall Curley was required to kind of put out a supplemental statement given how bad the backlash was to her buffoonery of a report here uh, in which uh, she said, and, and, and I think it's really important that we parse the words of a career civil servant very, very closely here. Um, quote, the justices actively cooperated in this iterative process, asking questions and answering mine. I followed up on all credible leads, none of which implicated the justices or their spouses. End of quote. Um, that is a far cry from I am the investigator and I sat down with each of the Supreme Court justices and asked them explicitly, did you leak this document to anyone? Did you ever share this document with anyone? That That's very clearly a, yeah, I, I when I talked to the justices, I asked them, you know, what members of their staff would I talk to or that sort of thing, right? Like, this is just... Right. Nobody, and and she know. didn't have him sign any affidavits. And, you know, and and we've known, you know, now for a couple of weeks that that whole investigation was bullshit. Correct. Uh, but now we're piling bullshit on top of bullshit <laughs> because we have, is it Michael Chertoff? Michael? It is. is that yeah. It, it is. Good it is former, Mike. yeah, D- Homeland Security Secretary under George W. Bush, who, by the way, the president who appointed Samuel Alito to the bench. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. Uh, and so now we've got Chertoff coming in, who's got a consulting company who's been paid at least a million dollars in the past by the Supreme Court to consult on security and I don't know, whatever. Uh, so certainly worth at least a million dollars. And the Supreme Court didn't disclose that they had this financial relationship with the guy who's supposed to come in and say that this investigation is on the up and up. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most that I didn't know, Andrew, is that the Supreme Court doesn't have to disclose its contracts. Uh, the, the, <laughs> so, yes to all of that. Uh, and... Let, let's let's unpack we don't it. know how much they gave to Chertoff because they don't have to disclose that shit. Uh, what is what the, is that? The the federal judicial code of ethics is voluntary but non-binding on Supreme Court justices. Trust uh, us. And it, 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 if that is the kind of thing that uh, appalls you. You know, I have had on uh, our our buddy Gabe Roth over at Fix the Court on opening arguments on a bunch of occasions. Um, there, there are folks, there are watchdog groups. Uh, Gabe is, is one of the very best uh, out there to try and uh, hold the Supreme Court accountable uh, to try. And, the, and, and, and look, there, there are not a lot of ways to do that, right? Uh, Supreme Court justices, like all federal judges, uh, hold their terms, like all Article Three judges, uh, hold their uh, jobs for life for good behavior. So the only possible removal of a Supreme Court justice uh, is impeachment, uh, not even uh, disbarment, not even conviction of a crime. They, they must be separately impeached uh, or they get to stay on the court so long as, uh, and the standard is good behavior, which, <laughs> what is that? Uh, you know, that's whatever uh, two-thirds of the Congress says that it is. So uh, the, the the other thing is that, you know, you have uh, a, a chief justice, a, a relatively young chief justice in John Roberts, who, uh, you know, we have described as an institutionalist who seems to care, uh, at least at some level, about how the court is perceived. And um, and the court is and should be perceived like crap over this, right? This is, this is a case uh, in which... And boy, if you get the patron bonuses from two weeks ago, uh, I, I was rather incendiary on the subject yeah. of, uh, of of this bullshit document. But but to summarize the facts, you had a credible whistleblower go to the uh, New York Times uh, public with a letter that he sent to the Supreme Court, to uh, the marshal and to, to, to John Roberts, uh, saying that, hey... Um, my buddy got a copy of the Hobby Lobby decision, another Alito decision, 
in advance of that decision coming out and use that to help uh, kind of build the infrastructure in the right-wing evangelical community for support when that opinion came out. This seems like a direct model of exactly what happened in Dobbs, and it's the same Supreme Court justice. Uh, again, that that investigative story came out in the New York Times three weeks after uh, Alito piously cried before uh, a Federalist Society panel that, you know, the leaker put all of us in the majority opinion at, at personal risk because the liberals were going to come kill us because if they killed us, then, you know, they it was just nonsense, right? This is... It, it, any reasonable inference is it, it, it's probably the guy who leaked it the last time. And and the the 21 page report that is uh, filled out, or I guess it's 20 pages uh, by the marshal in in zero of those pages uh, evaluates whether the leak came from uh, a Supreme Court justice or a Supreme Court justice's activist, crazy lunatic, QAnon loving spouse. Uh, and the Michael Chertoff, and this finally wraps up your question. The Chertoff group statement uh, that signs off on this and says, uh, throughout my review, the investigations were transparent, cooperative, and available to answer my questions about the process. At this time, I cannot identify any additional useful investigative measure. Any, right? That, that is a one-page letter appended to the top of it. Uh, again, I have no idea how much Michael Chertoff was paid for that. I'm assuming a lot. And mm. uh, and it's just ridiculous to to uh, to say yeah you couldn't identify any right maybe let's talk to the whistleblower whom uh, is never mentioned in the report maybe let's talk to Alito never mentioned in in the report maybe let's talk to uh, Jenny Thomas never mentioned in the report right I mean just 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 preposterous and so uh, all of that takes us up to the CNN story that uh, broke over the weekend uh, that says. The, the court in recent years uh, has privately contracted with Michael Chertoff's, the Chertoff Group, for security assessments broadly covering justice's safety and some specifically related to COVID-19 protocols at the court itself. The estimated payments to Chertoff's risk assessment firm for consultations that extended over several months and involved a review of the justice's homes reached at least a million dollars. The exact amount of money paid could not be determined because, as you point out, Supreme Court contracts are not covered by federal public disclosure rules and elude <laughs> tracking on public databases. Okay, um, quick uh, quick question for you. Uh, is it uh, a statute uh, that says that these aren't supposed to be put on public databases? Like, like who decided that and can that be changed? So it, it, it can be. That is uh, rulemaking. But again, uh, when it covers rulemaking at the court, uh, guess who is the chair of the rules that get to be made? Uh, and that is to say uh, it, that that comes with guidance at the top down from the Supreme Court. Well, so, right. But does that mean that the executive branch can just make a rule saying we don't have to disclose our contract amounts and who they go to? They can just do that. That can just be rulemaking within an agency like the Supreme Court. Uh <sighs> There you're talking about the Administrative Procedure Act. And so there, I think there are sufficient guardrails. It would be a super lengthy conversation about if uh, you had precise rulemaking, notice and comment period, and uh, whether you came to the conclusion of you do not have to disclose where the congressional demand is, you must disclose. I, I think you would have a very good APA case that says that that's ultra-virus. But that's because executive rulemaking is different from judicial rulemaking. Oh, and, all right. Well, all right. Yeah. Well, how about this? Could Congress pass a law called the Transparency and Justice Act that forces the uh, the, ju the judiciary to disclose their contracts? That I believe they could do. Yes. And that has to do with... Unless the, the Supreme Court turned overturned it. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> now, and, 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 and oh, you, I laugh you have seen so I the cry. asterisk there. Yeah. Um, look, these are real issues and it's why I flagged fix the court at the beginning because the easiest solutions are the public pressure solutions, right? Like this is the kind of thing that I, I know our politics are broken, but like you ought to say like, Hey, should 64 separate investigations into Brett Kavanaugh have been shut down simply because he was elevated from the circuit court of appeal to the Supreme court. And I think the average person would say no, right? Like that, that shouldn't 
close those down, but it does, right? Should the Supreme Court have mandatory disclosures that follow best practices on the federal judiciary? I think most people would say, yeah, yeah, they should, as opposed to uh, the current situation where they don't. And I think a, a large part of that is I, I think people assume, uh, as as I did before I started researching it, uh, that you know when a, an ethics guide says it covers the federal judiciary, that uh, since the federal judiciary is defined in Article Three of the Constitution as one Supreme Court and such lesser courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and establish, right? Like you'd think, oh well. If, if the federal judiciary means anything, it means the Supreme Court. But when it comes to ethics rules, it doesn't. So uh, mm. I, that's the role I think we play in this process. All right. Well, I will continue to play it. Um, I know <laughs> because, you will. <laughs> because that's bullshit. Uh, having worked on federal government contracts, uh, the fact that the, a, a government agency where taxpayer dollars pay for their contracts doesn't have to be disclosed of where their money is spent just blows my fucking mind. Yeah, uh, all right. as well it should. Yeah, because I can't even apply for a job with any co- like any company whose contract I've been within ten feet of, you know, not even have to work on it. That's just if I, if I looked at it or was if I was in the same room, I can't even apply to a job. I have to wait two years. So it's that just is confounding to the ethics senses. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, should you know, shocked, not surprised um, when it comes to this particular Supreme Court. All right, uh, that's our show. Wonderful um, discussion today, Andrew. Thank you so much for answering all my all my questions. And uh, if you have any questions, you can always uh, attend the next Q and A happy hour live extravaganza for patrons, which we will be scheduling very soon. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, and I think we'll probably be able to announce it on next week's show. Uh, do you have anything else you want to cover, Andrew, before we get out of here? Uh, nothing here. All right. Well, in that case, I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.